we've been singing, to whom we need to give our hearts and our attention because that can change your life, that will change your life. And we are in a world right now that needs that message. So we want to pray this morning especially for the centrality and the beauty of Jesus to become more real to more people through this church and through churches around us. We're going to pray for our outreach to our friends over at Tobias Elementary School. Uh, We're going to pray much further from our shores this morning for the tragedies that are taking place in Afghanistan. And uh, last but not least, we're joined this morning by a good friend of mine, Mark Whitcomb, who's an associate pastor at Henson Baptist Church in downtown Portland, who's going to open up God's word for us in a few minutes. So we're going to pray for Henson as well and God's work there, even as they uh, have started their worship service about five minutes ago, worshiping right along with us. So church, would you join me as we come together before our Father in prayer? God, we are... I just never cease to be blown away that we can call you God, Father, one who, who made us, who made us in your image, who, though we were separate, adopts us back into family relationship to make us not just servants of yours, though we are that, uh, not just worshipers of yours, though we are that, uh, not just those who accomplish your purposes or give you your due, though we are delighted to be all of those things, but also to make us daughters, sons, to be to us, yes, God and king, but simultaneously loving father. Jesus, you are the one who has made all that possible. Because in your grace, you came to this earth, God become man, to die on the cross, pay for our sins, rise to new life that we might experience life with you for eternity. We can't put into words, God, what that means, what that does, I pray that before we leave today, the heart and the mind of every person in this room and every person watching this stream would come to understand a little bit more what the reality of Jesus means to them. Father, we pray that you would help other people around us see your truth and your beauty. Even as we reach out next Saturday to Tobias Elementary School, it can seem so simple to go pull weeds and spread bark dust, but God, what a tangible display of love. What a joy to see an army of your people delighted to give up a couple hours on a Saturday morning to love and serve the community, to help some of our teachers in our public schools try to begin to sort out what school is going to look like this year and know that there are people in the community who are for them, not just against them, and those people represent Jesus. God, I pray that you would put it on our hearts to love and to serve and to make you known. And we pray for great connections to be made with the families at Tobias, with the staff and the faculty at Tobias, as we show them your love in a practical way. Draw men and women to yourself. And Jesus, we pray the same thing for the tragedies we're constantly seeing around the world in Afghanistan. Our hearts break. Uh, The news is full of of hype and fear. It is easy to go into a hole and be anxious. But when we go into your word, you've told us to expect these things. And so while we do not at all minimize the heartache of what is happening, we can breathe deep knowing that the world seems to us out of control because to us it is out of control. It is not out of control to you. And God, you are accomplishing your purposes. You promised you would build your church and you have used tragedies like what is taking place right now in Afghanistan repeatedly to draw millions to faith in Christ. And we pray that for Afghan men and women right now. Those who are fleeing the country and who succeed in getting out, God, we pray that they would come to places where they can actually see the emptiness of the kind of violent Islam that the Taliban is pushing and maybe ask perhaps for the first time, is God really like what I've been told? Is there another way? I pray, God, that you would show them Jesus clearly 
through your church. Father, for those Afghans who stay, we pray for their lives. We pray for their families. We pray for their food and the shelter and the clothing and the protection that they need. Our hearts break for them. God, supernaturally, we pray, would you meet their needs? With the Afghan believers who are there, God, we pray that you would give them tremendous wisdom, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to know when and how to speak, to know when and how to take what looked to us as humans to be risks, to make the gospel known. And we pray that, that the emptiness of violent Islam in the eyes and the hearts of so many Afghans over these next coming weeks and months would draw many to faith in Christ. Jesus, accomplish eternal work as you preserve life and most importantly, give eternal life. God, accomplish your purposes and grow your church in that country. And Father, lastly, we pray for us and our churches right here in the Portland area as we see not only refugees from Afghanistan who are already here and more may come, but also from other countries, other places, even Americans who are not refugees, but people who are uh, displaced from you. God, would you make us faithful as we proclaim your grace in the midst of a time when we're having to think about masks and viruses and things we don't want to think about. But God, we have to deal with that. May we deal with that well and yet not forget our mission to proclaim Jesus. I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ down at Hinson this morning as their worship service begins and pray for their faithful gospel witness there in and around inner southeast Portland. Father, as our brother Dan opens the word there this morning, we pray that you'd give him your words. We pray that you'd speak to the congregation there, even as you speak to us here. Unify us. Let us not be a people who divide over lesser things, but a people who unite around the greatness of Jesus. And we pray that that unity itself would be a tremendous testimony to the Portland area of who you are. God, glorify yourself in our midst. We can't do these things without you, but you can do them all. So we pray that you would. So God, it is for our good and your glory. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. We've come to hear from God, and so I want to read from his word this morning. In just a moment, Mark is going to come up and preach from Psalm 72. Uh, we're in a, a short series of, of messages to end our summer. Where we're just calling a soak in the Psalms. As a church, we want to come together for these few Sundays and just look at, at what the Psalms in the Old Testament tell us about who God is and just kind of soak in that, in God's goodness. And the focus today is on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's great King. We want to enter into that and we want to just soak in that. And so let's, let's let the Word of God unpack that a little bit for us. I want to read Psalm 72. I'm going to read the first 11 verses and then ask Mark to come up and lead us through this text. Psalm 72, verse 1. A, song, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. 
May the kings of Tarshish and all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. The word of our great king. Mark, would you come up and lead us, brother, into God's word? Thank you, Matt. It's a joy to be here this morning with you all. Uh, If you're like me, uh, you like to know a little bit about the person that is talking to you. I know it can be a little awkward, uh, as I don't know many of you. Uh, Just a a quick update on who I am and how I got here. Uh, I was born and raised in South Carolina, so I'm an East Coaster. Uh, My dad's a pastor, grew up in a pastor's home. And uh, most of my younger years, I found myself playing soccer. Uh, It's a lot of my time and my identity. Though I trusted in Christ uh, at a young age and uh, ended up going to a Bible college in Wisconsin, and there God really working in my heart to uh, give me a passion to preach the Word and pursue pastoral ministry, and ultimately uh, really find my identity only in Him and not in sports or anything else. Uh, And so I finished Bible college, got married, went to uh, grad school in Michigan, and uh, after I finished up grad school, I was looking for what would ministry look like, where would that happen, and connected with Michael Lawrence out here in Portland, uh, my wife and I fell in love with Portland. We moved out here in 2013 with a six-month-old daughter. Uh, I uh, was working in the auto industry at the time and worked uh, for a number of years uh, doing marketing and then ended up coming on staff at Henson in 2017 and have since uh, had two more boys. So we've got three little kids running around and uh, my wife and I are, are uh, happily celebrated 14 years of marriage this last week. And so Uh, joyful to be uh, preaching here as I get opportunity to preach at Henson. We have also been in the Psalms this summer, uh, working through the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, so it's been a joy to preach in the Psalms and just soak in God's Word. And a joy for us to be able to do this together here this morning uh, as we think about uh, the truth of God's Word and how that applies to our hearts. As we're well aware, uh, in our current culture, with politics, with uh, the outrage of elections, of uh, protests and whatnot that happen in our fair city, uh, we are not unfamiliar with the idea that we wish for a wonderful and perfect and peaceful kingdom to live in. We would love to have that. We'd love to have rulers who ruled us perfectly, justly, who made all the right decisions. We would love to be at peace with the politics that are happening in our country, that no one would be fighting over these things. Nobody would have disagreement. We would all agree, no, this is the right person for the job, and we all get along. We'd all look for for that, wouldn't we? And we feel for our brothers and sisters, even the the relevant news, uh, as as Matt prayed and we've mentioned, uh, in Afghanistan, the difficulties that they face because of the change of government, because of those who are taking over and wars that are happening and strife and and tension, particularly for the people of God. We we feel that tension in our world and the culture around us. And we long for a perfected kingdom that that we can rest in. If we only had a nation that would just follow God every day, all day, wouldn't that be peaceful? Wouldn't that make your life a little bit more quiet? I mean, what, what would we have to talk about? What would the news stations have to report about? And yet, you and I both know that's not the reality that we live in. And my hope is, this morning, as we spend time in Psalm 72, we will be reminded of what we truly hope in. That we will be reminded that God's kingdom is the better kingdom, because God's king is a better king. 
There's one idea that I want us to walk away with today, of you remembering and saying, this is how God's Word can teach me and inform my thinking this week. It is this idea. God's kingdom is a better kingdom because God's king is a better king. If you're not already in Psalm 72, I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, We're going to spend quite a bit of time uh, in this text. And uh, as we look at this psalm, we see uh, right away here at the very beginning, uh, as Matt had read for us, this is a song of Solomon. Uh, Really a question here of whether Solomon wrote this, uh, and and this is actually his, or if David wrote it, because if you glance, we're going to kind of cheat and look at the very last verse, verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. All right, here is actually a conclusion to book two of the Psalms. All right, Psalm 72 is the last Psalm and kind of the set of what we'd consider book two. And verse 20 serves as a conclusion to help reference that these were Psalms of David. And uh, many people discuss this. Uh, it doesn't necessarily impact our full understanding of the Psalm, but it is important to recognize uh, that it seems like Solomon has written this Psalm in light of even his own reign and rule. Uh, and, and that it's included with David's psalms to us. But ultimately, God's word here for us to learn and to think about who is God and what is our response to him. And so I really only have two simple points that I want us to walk through this morning. First is God's kingdom, and second is God's king. And we're going to really just do an overview. We're going to kind of do a flyover. We're going to work through all 20 verses and think about God's kingdom uh, so it's going to be quick. I ask you to like, bear with me, keep with me, and then we're going to take some time to think about, in that second point, God's king, and really dwell on what is the application for our own hearts as we think about this kingdom. So point one, we're going to start with God's kingdom. Here we see that the psalm is, uh, as we kind of go throughout this, we're going to see different stanzas broken up, and I'm going to take six stanzas for us to focus on kind of the nature and characteristic of God's kingdom because of the king. And so here, uh, under God's kingdom, we're first going to see that God's kingdom is just. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Uh, Here we see the language of the psalmist beginning to ask God to give justice to the king, to make the king one who rules in righteousness over his people. What a glorious request to see a ruler who rules in justice and righteousness. This is really something that you and I cannot fathom all that well. But can you imagine a ruler in this country, in a place where we live, who has perfect justice. Oh, every pursuit, every decision that he's making, every ruling is right. It is good for the people. It is good for the, the deliverance of the kingdom, for, for the growth of the kingdom, for the deliverance of those who are needy, who are hurt, who need to be defended. And one who is doing that because he is righteous. What a kingdom that would be, a kingdom that is ruled with justice and righteousness that promotes the well-being of the people and the furtherance of the kingdom. Something that's hard for us to imagine, and yet here this is described of this kingdom. One that is filled with justice. One that ultimately results in peace, as we see 
In verse 3, this language, let the mountain bear prosperity, that word prosperity is actually the same root as the word that we see in verse 7. We're going to get to this in just a minute, uh, where it says, and may peace abound. This idea of, of prosperity that results in peace. It is a peace for these people, for this nation, for this kingdom. And here, the ruler who's ruling in justice and who's ruling in righteousness, he rules in a way that brings peace prosperity, well-being for the people. And here, even that the people are rescued, verse 4, to defend the cause of the poor, to give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Well, that's the kind of place that we would desire, right? To live in, to be a part of, to see this happening. Oh, but it doesn't end there. It's not just a world of justice. No, secondly, we see that God's kingdom is enduring. Verses 5 through 7. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like the showers that that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Here we see that God's kingdom will be a kingdom that endures. This description, this beautiful language and imagery that's given to us of as long as the sun is in the sky and the moon is in the sky, generation from generation, this description of day after day, year after year, the kingdom endures. We don't know anything of this, do we? Because every kingdom since the dawn of time has continued to fall. There's no ruler that has figured out the right formula. There is no king that has lasted forever, and the kingdom has always continued. No, there's always a a change of hands, there's a change of borders, there's a change of existence with nation to nation. And yet we see that in this kingdom, the ruler who is enduring year over year and generation from generation brings blessing again to his people. His rule, in verse 6, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass. His rule is a rule that brings peace and blessing. It is like sweet rain. I know we haven't experienced a lot of rain recently, which is kind of unusual for Portland. Today is a nice day to get a little bit of rain, to experience and to remember the renewal that it brings to the earth, to see growth, to see life. And here, a kingdom that endures is because a king who is flourishing with his people, who is seeing the people grow. Like rain and, fl- and showers, he is a blessing. And so in verse 17, the righteous are the ones who are flourishing. Peace is abounding until the moon be no more, until the world ceases to exist, the endurance of this kingdom. Oh, what a glorious kingdom, one that endures from generation to generation, that never fails, is never conquered, and never falls apart. Only the righteous flourish in this kingdom and only peace is known. But it's not just a kingdom that is just and endures, but it is a kingdom that is expansive, verses 8 through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Oh, this kingdom is not limited in its scope. 
Here we see the breadth of the kingdom from sea to sea, from the the mighty river here referring most likely to the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth, the known world. Oh, that this kingdom would cover all nations and all people. We see in verse 11 that all nations bow down. They all serve him. All the kings fall down before this king. Can you imagine a kingdom that is not only just and right and enduring forever, but it covers all the known world? It covers all people? It covers all territory? includes everyone? This is really quite incomprehensible for us because we only have a knowledge of our own limitations, of what we've experienced, of what we've seen. In one sense, this would be the idea. I mean, this is, this is part of why it's so hard to fathom. This would almost be the idea of the U.S. president being respected by every other ruler in the world and every other nation, saying, no, this is our leader and we're going to follow him. Whatever he says is best and right and we will pay honor to him. That just seems crazy, right? That's not our known reality. And yet this is what this kingdom is characterized by. A kingdom that is respected, the king who is honored, because it is global. And yet it is not just these characteristics, but the psalmist continues in verses 12 through 14. This is a kingdom that is redeemed. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Well, now we get a glimpse of the people who are in this kingdom. Oh, they are not the mighty. They are not the ones who are extremely successful and have accomplished life and figured out the key to life. No, these are the ones who are needy, who are poor, the ones who need to be taken pity on because they have nothing the ones who need help. And the king is the one who redeems them. He makes them a people. He makes them worthy. He is the one who builds this kingdom. It isn't the people. And here we recognize a kingdom that is dependent on its king. It would not exist if it were not for him. And a kingdom that is redeemed into a people that are now worthy, that are worth something, that have their needs met, who are cared for, and who are loved a people that have been saved. This is the description of God's kingdom. And here as we see people who come together, even as is described in kind of the expanse of the kingdom of all nations, here we see in this section those who are desperate for a king who can care for them. And there is no distinction between those who are poor and needy and helpless. They are all dependent on the king which then we recognize takes away class and prejudice. It takes away a society that is upper class, middle class, and lower class. No, these are all people who are without and who need God's work. They need to be redeemed. And so here is a kingdom that is established on the idea of redemption, people who are in need. Fifthly, we see that the characteristic of this kingdom is that the kingdom is blessed versus 15 to 17. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, 
May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Here we have a kingdom that is blessed. We see riches being given to the king. We see a land that is filled with plenty, that is growing, that is prosperous. And we see people who are blessing the name of the king, and they themselves are receiving blessing because of the king's rule. A kingdom that is working together, that is grateful and joyful of the leadership and the rule and the reign of the king. And they are experiencing sweet blessing time and time again. It is the description of the kingdom. This is not something rare or new. It is what will continue on in this kingdom. It is described as one that is blessed. And no kingdom in the world is blessed in this way. We all know destruction. We all know famine. We all hear reports of pestilence and frustration around the world. And at times we might experience glimpses of that, that we recognize we are quite blessed here where we live. And for these people, they are experiencing year after year of blessing, of fruitfulness, of prosperity, of goodness. And their king is being honored as one who should be blessed. Uh, We can only dream of a kingdom like this. And lastly, the last characteristic here in verses 18 and 19, this is a kingdom that is for God's glory. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Here we see a recognition of God's authority and power in this kingdom. That the purpose of this kingdom is not just for the good of the people and praise of the king and blessing upon him and his people, but ultimately it is for God's glory. This is a kingdom that is characterized by one that points to God as God is the one who rules and reigns over it. And so we would look at this kingdom of God and say, ah, this is a kingdom that is not just for the people, it is for God's glory, which is a very helpful descriptor and characteristic of God's kingdom. It has little to do about the people who are in the kingdom and has much to do about the one who rules and reigns over the kingdom. And ultimately, it is God's work in the end. All right, so that is a big picture, hopefully, of what this kingdom looks like, one that is just, that endures, that, that is characterized by its, its great expanse, that is one made up of people who are redeemed, who are blessed. And all of this is for God's glory. And as you've heard me say, and you're probably thinking, I have no idea what this looks like. This is not my experience. This is not a kingdom that I live in, and I haven't heard of anyone else that lives in this kingdom. And we long for this. We desire this. You know, my days would be a lot easier if I knew that everything was going to be peaceful, that every day would be a blessed day, that every leader, ruler, that my king was just and righteous and he was the right person for the right job and was going to accomplish everything that I needed accomplished. Oh, my life would be free from stress. It would be free from anxiety and angst and fears because everything would be peaceful. It would be blessed. It would be joyful. But this is not 
the kingdom that we live in. So why do we have Psalm 72? How does this help us? Why did Solomon write this prayer? Why was he praying this about his own rule and reign? Well, he desired this as much as we might desire this, but he as the king wanted to be a king who could lead a kingdom like this. But in the end, Solomon failed, didn't he? This wasn't actually how his kingdom turned out. This wasn't how his rule and reign turned out. Yes, God blessed him with wisdom and riches and power and authority. And in time, that was all taken away as Solomon failed to follow God in every way. And it's not just Solomon. No, it was David, it was Saul, it was every king after Solomon, it was every ruler to this day have fallen short of this type of kingdom. No one has been able to make this happen. And so that leaves us with the question, then who is God's king that's going to accomplish this? Because if this is what God will do, and his word says this is what his kingdom looks like, who can do this? And so that brings us to our second point, God's king. I want to draw your attention to verse 18. Here we see, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. And there we get a glimpse of what this psalm has been pointing towards this entire time. It is God alone who can accomplish this work. It is God alone who can be the king. All throughout Scripture, we get glimpses of a hope that was given. See, in Genesis chapter 3, at the point of the fall, God told Adam and Eve, yes, this earth is cursed. Everyone will fail in their pursuit of perfection and righteousness. Sin exists. And yet, I will provide a son who will redeem a people, who will be a savior. And it wasn't Solomon, and it wasn't any of these kings Time and time again for Israel, they looked for that king. Who is the one that God promised? And even after these kings ruled and reigned, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, this is said about the king who was to come. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Oh, here in Isaiah chapter 11 is a description of a king who would do just what Psalm 72 said the kingdom would look like and who the king would be, one who rules in justice and in righteousness. And we get to the New Testament and we see this one who comes, the son of Jesse, Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden we have a man who's living in righteousness without sin. He is just. He is perfect. 
And he lives his life, and yet he dies on a cross. He pays the penalty of death, the penalty of sin for us. Because he died on the cross, one who was righteous and made sin for us, because he knew no sin, and yet he was made sin for us so that he might defeat sin and death because Jesus Christ didn't just die on the cross paying the penalty for sin and death, but he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And in rising from the grave, becoming the one who is clearly the conqueror who would rule and reign the Son of God, God himself become man. And he didn't come to save the righteous, he came to save the needy, the hopeless, the ones who needed a helper, the ones who needed to be saved from the oppression of sin. And so Jesus Christ himself became this king. He was this king. And he served us, dying on the cross, that we might have salvation through his name. You know, if you're here this morning and you haven't heard the message of Jesus Christ, you haven't thought much about the name of Jesus Christ, well, this is a message for you. In the brokenness of this world, and the frustration of fallen leaders, of broken governments and kingdoms, there is a king who came, and he died for you. And we're told in Scripture, if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we repent of sin, oh, that he is faithful and he is just, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, this is the king that we needed, God's king, his son, Jesus Christ, who would save us from our sin. And so if you haven't believed this message, if you haven't heard this message, I would encourage you, talk to someone that you came with or talk to, to Matt or one of the leaders here, talk to me. would love to tell you what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus Christ to see him as your king, to live life experienced knowing that he is your king who has saved you. It would be a wonderful moment to be able to tell you what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have this hope. We recognize just because we believe in Jesus Christ and have faith in him, and I don't actually know this kingdom. I haven't had this experience. I don't know a perfect kingdom that's peaceful, that is always a blessing and fruitful and growing. That is not my day-to-day -day experience. And so I want to be clear. I'm not saying that through Jesus there is this current, physical, earthly kingdom that looks just like what's described here in Psalm 72. I'm not saying that if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have your best life now and everything is going to be better and you won't ever have to worry about anything in life. No, there are going to be worries and fears, but yet putting them in perspective of the king, which is partially what I want to talk about here in the application. But the work of Christ accomplished, it changes us spiritually. We are new creatures. We are no longer slaves to sin and unrighteousness. No, we are redeemed, and the work of the Holy Spirit is in us, working through us, drawing us closer to Him. And so what we experience through the work of Christ now is what we call already, an already kingdom that we get to experience a glimpse of, a hope of, of His work in and through us. But it isn't the full kingdom yet. 
Because what we're given in Psalm 72 is a picture of God's glorious kingdom that we will know for eternity. It is a hope. It is what we look forward to. And though we might already experience some of God's kingdom through his spiritual work in our hearts, someday we will know in full his glorious kingdom. And I trust that as we go through Psalm 72 and you hear this explanation and these ideas of what God's kingdom is, you are taking hope and joy and rejoicing that this is the kingdom to come. This is what we have forward. This is what we have to look forward to as God's people, even if we experience some of these blessings now. And so for those of us that have trusted in Christ, I want to press into what does this mean? How does this change my day-to-day. How does Christ's work as king change your life today? Because this kingdom isn't necessarily what I experience day-to-day. So how do I hope in this and see it change what happens tomorrow? All right, application number one. All right, I'm going to give three points of application here just to press into this text. How does Christ's salvation and protection of us change the way that we face suffering and oppression. You know, particularly here in stanza 1, verses 1 through 4, and uh, again in in stanza 5, uh, excuse me, 4, verses 12 through 14, we see those who are needy, those who are, are experiencing oppression, pain, and suffering. And there is a hope that is given here, that King Jesus is the one who will resolve this. He will redeem a people. He will save us from this suffering and pain. This is not guarantee for Christians that there will be a life without suffering. First Peter makes it quite clear that just as Christ suffered, we too will suffer in this life. Just as we see in the news right now of those around the world who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is a reality. And yet the fact that Jesus is king changes how I face that suffering and oppression. You know, you and I might not experience physical enemies here in this country who are oppressing us and saying, no, you can't preach the Bible. No, you can't study together as Christians. No, you can't believe that. But more and more, we are feeling the oppression of those who are against the truth of the gospel. Those who say, no, you can't have that opinion because it's contrary to mine. No, you can't take off Sundays for work because you are religious. No, there are ways that we are practically persecuted in this life, ways that we feel that oppression. And King Jesus gives us hope because I can recognize that God is in control, that he has called me to this life and know that he has suffered in a way that I will never suffer in his death on the cross, taking upon himself the sins of this world. And so we take hope knowing that Jesus himself here, the just judge, the one who is righteous, will judge every wicked and evil deed. And I don't have to. I I can leave that persecution and that suffering in the hands of God, knowing that in the final day I will be justified, that I will stand before his throne knowing that what has happened to me was wrong and unjust, and yet God is right and just and has justified me. And so do you remember in your suffering that Jesus will be the judge of unrighteousness in the final day? Uh, But our suffering is often more than that. It is not just 
that oppression that we might feel because we claim the name of Jesus and follow after Him. Now, that oppression and attack comes from the brokenness of this world because many of us suffer from pain, ongoing illness, sickness, the difficulty of life, that it's broken, of broken relationships, of broken work circumstances. Now, everything in this world that we touch eventually falls apart and it breaks. And it brings sorrow. It brings frustration. It brings fears. And yet we can recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the one who is needy. Jesus is the one who is helping the one who has no helper. And we can depend on Him for hope, for joy, for measure of this peace, even when it feels like nothing is peaceful in my life. And so do your fears, your pain and suffering, your difficulty in life remind you of Jesus Christ? Does it remind you that Jesus cares and He knows? Does it point your attention back to a Savior? But I think the third category of suffering that we might know is the attack of Satan and sin. Uh, To know that I endure in this life to continue to face sin, to continue to face temptation. Every day to pray, God, no, spare me from this, that I don't have to deal with this sin today that I can have deliverance from this suffering today. We're not going to experience that fully in this life, and yet to remind ourselves, no, God has redeemed me from that. I am no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. I don't have to serve this sin. I don't have to serve the temptations that come into my life. No, I can depend on Jesus to give me strength and therefore turn to Him. Turn to His Word and in prayer to find strength in these moments of suffering. In oppression. This is the King who can do that for us. This is the hope that we have in the midst of suffering and oppression. A second point of application How does Christ's eternality change how we view the things of this world? If God rules and reigns, if Jesus Christ rules and reigns for eternity, we saw that the enduring kingdom that will last forever. How does that change the way that I think about the things that I have in this world? You know, we all feel the need to be stable, to have financial stability, to know that I'm going to be cared for, that my loved ones will be cared for, to know that things aren't falling apart. And we often look to possessions and and financial well-being to be established and founded in this world. And yet here in this text we read that there is blessing upon blessing that comes to God's people. How do we reconcile that? God, I'm your follower. I I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in this King and yet I struggle financially. I struggle to make it week to week. God, I'm concerned about keeping my job or keeping my place here in this world and society and, and having this status that everything's okay. We live with a certain measure of uncertainty because we can't keep the things that we have. And yet Jesus brings us into a spiritual blessing that informs these blessings to say, no, my life is not made up 
and consists of, of being defined by the blessing that I experience in this life? No, my life consists of being able to say, no, what I have in this life is a sweet picture of more of what's to come in eternity. Every blessing that I have, every financial benefit, every comfort that I have in this life is just a glimpse. It is a small taste of what we will experience in eternity. And so how do you look at your financial possessions? How do you look at what God has given you in this life, what gives you a sense of stability? Can you look at that with an open hand to say, God, if you give this to me now, I will look at it and say, I have more to come in eternity. Or do you hold that hand closed and say, no, this is what life is about and this is all I can live for? Because I guarantee you cannot take it with you. I guarantee what you have in this life stays in this life. And so we take hope in the King, Jesus Christ, who has given us spiritual blessing, who has promised that our inheritance is actually his inheritance, what he has received, beyond our imagination, to have a God who created this universe, who will give us every need and meet every need for eternity. Oh, that we would faithfully endure in this life with hope for the life to come. To know that the tangible blessings that we experience in this life are just a glimpse of what God has prepared for us in eternity. And so it allows me to, to let go of the things I have here, to hold them loosely, to entrust them to the Lord. And my third point of application, how does the expanse of Christ's kingdom change how we love one another? If God's kingdom is a kingdom that is made up of all nations, of all people who come and worship Him and gather together to sing His praises, should we not desire that for the small glimpse of the kingdom that we have here? Our experience of living with one another. And so my question for you this morning is, how does following King Jesus change the way that you look at your neighbor, the one around you, to say, no, I want you to follow King Jesus as well? Because He has died so that all might turn to Him. Right? That every tongue and every tribe and every nation would worship Him and bow down before Him. And therefore, I am one who is compelled then to share the gospel with those who are around me. Is there anyone that is around you that you think isn't good enough for God's kingdom? Who, who isn't right? Who isn't kind enough or loving enough? Who doesn't have enough in this life? Who, who just doesn't have the right status in this world? Who isn't from the right country, or the right nation, the right people group? I trust that's not the case for you. But that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can look at a text like this to see, oh, every nation, all people will worship this king. They follow Jesus Christ. I want to be one who's proclaiming that message to everyone. Because the reality is, no matter what our status is in this society, now, no matter how good we think we are that we might deserve this kingdom, all of us are described as the ones who are needy, who are poor, who need to be delivered, who are pitied, and who have no helper. We need King Jesus. And so we faithfully proclaim to those around us, no, this church, this body of believers, is welcoming to all those around us. 
all those who would seek to know Jesus Christ, we, we want to call you to be here to worship together, to be a church that is proclaiming the gospel, to be an individual who's living that out in my neighborhood, that I would love those around me, that they would know, no, I'm welcome to be around that person. I want to be around that person because they love me, regardless of my status in life, regardless of the difficulties that I face. We are to be a people who are welcoming everyone, to hear the message of Jesus Christ and to follow him as king. Our display of love and care for those within this church and the kingdom of God should be a testimony to the watching world that we are united in our faith following after Jesus Christ to say, no, we as a people are welcoming others to join in with us. Jesus is worth following. And I trust that as we think about this text, your heart is opened to the truth of God's Word, to be impacted by the reality that King Jesus rules and reigns now, and we will experience that in its fullness later. You might be tempted to think this week that if only so-and-so was in charge and everything in this world would be good. If only we had the right president. If only we had a world leader who could just keep peace. Everything in the world would get better. You might think that so-and-so is actually you. That if you were in charge, man, if I could control my life, it's going to be good. Let me be a kind reminder to you through the truth of God's Word. Oh, it's not you. It's not any other ruler in this world that will make this world peaceful, joyful, a blessing, to endure forever. No, it is only Jesus Christ. And He has come. And he does rule and reign. And so the question to us is, how does that change how I live this week to reflect that I'm not in charge, but Jesus Christ is? We enjoy this kingdom already. We look forward to the kingdom of come, to come. Because God's kingdom is a better kingdom. It's because God's king is a better king. Let me pray as our musicians come back up. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we give you praise for your son, Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all, that he is king, or that he is a better king than any one of us can be in our own lives, that he is a better king than any nation can know, because he is righteous and just and sacrificed himself for us, the needy and the poor and the weak and wounded. God, help our eyes to see this truth this week, that we would be transformed in the way that we live with those around us. God, that, that Jesus ruling and reigning as king would promote the glory of your kingdom and that we would take hope in the kingdom to come. Lord, that we would think little of ourselves and much of you and that your name would be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.